This is my journey, inspired one story at a time. A library of leaders was created. It began as a journey to learn. As time went on, it began to grow. All it needed was a platform, and this podcast was created to listen, to inspire, to share. I am a storyteller, and this is my journey. Welcome to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. I am your host, Steve Anderson, and today's guest is Allie Shoes. I've known Allie for 30 plus years, and I think this is just really an interesting interview uh, when she discusses how she started as a staff physical therapist in in a hospital setting and then uh, had the uh, encouragement to start a private practice and own her own business, and so she did. And she owned that, built it up, eventually sold that practice and a few others to a national PT corporation, worked for them for quite a few years, and then uh, came out of that um, organization and started all over again in private practice. So she has a lot of insight in both those areas to to share with us today. Uh, We also talk a lot about how she grew up with a very strong work ethic, And I'm also very proud of Allie for being willing to go deep with us on uh, kind of the white privilege issues and and how she viewed that one way uh, previously and now has seen it in a different way. And I think that's very insightful. And we also talk about the extreme health challenges that she has had in her own, own family and how running a practice and dealing with their needs and being a a caregiver and a leader in both those settings and, and how stressful and, and tough that can be. So I think we cover a lot of ground in this interview, um, talk about a lot of personal things as well as business things, and, and I hope you enjoy it. I, I think it's a great great to hear how people maneuver their life uh, through this complicated uh, um, world that we live in and, and how we make time for the things that are uh, priorities and, and how things just uh, seem to have a way of working out. So it's, it's a very interesting interview. I hope you enjoy it. So let's dive right into it. Hi, Allie. Welcome to the program. Great, great to talk to you today. Thanks, Steve. I'm really delighted to be here. So let's uh, explore your story a little bit here. Uh, from what I know and understand, uh, you grew up in a small town in, in small town America, right? In a big family. I did, yeah, very, very much so. A little Mayberry RFD. <laughs> so, tell us a little <laughs> bit about that, and and uh, what 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 part of that experience made you who you are? Um, so it's called Sunnyside, Washington, and I spent most of my life telling people, no, it's not in California. That's Sunnyvale. Um, so even people in Washington still to this day don't know where Sunnyside is. It's in the Yakima Valley, so it's smack dab in the middle part of Washington towards the southern end and um we always got very defensive that we weren't eastern washington because we weren't spokane we were central washington <laughs> and yes sunnyside had 7200 people in it when i grew up and um it's a farming community it has a large uh immigrant population and i grew up um with working class parents we uh thought we were quite well off actually, which I think is a blessing sometimes in a small town. Um, I thought we were more well-to-do than we probably were because my parents owned a business and um, my mom uh, was a very, very hard charger and raised her five daughters and two boys to believe that they could do anything that they wanted to do and really demonstrated 
that herself. Um, and you're in this little microcosm of a town. Yeah, you know, everybody knows everybody, and there's some there's some blessings in that. And then, what brought you to the big town? How did you uh, leave uh, Sunnyside <laughs> and end up in the in Greater Seattle area? So, I my mom's and dad's family, uh, mom's especially, is from the Seattle area, and um, so we had grown up coming over here for vacations and holidays and things, and. Like everyone else on my part of the state at that time had no desire to ever live in rainy, gray Seattle, which we even back then thought there was too much traffic. Um, but I wanted to go to a school that had a physical therapy program, and UPS had that, as did uh, the University of Washington, and I got into both of them. And I remember telling people, don't worry, four years and I'll be back. You know, I'm just going over there to go to school and really never thought that I would stay. I would say the majority of my friends went to um, Wazoo at that time, went the other direction. And once I got over here, it took me about one month to decide I was probably never going back. Yeah. I, I just really, yeah, I got out of little town and loved it. Now, just for those who maybe not are from the area, so you're saying UPS is the University of Puget Sound, which is in Tacoma. And Correct. Wazoo is the nickname for Washington State University, which is in the eastern part of the state in Pullman. Yes, yes. There's my Washington speak. <laughs> okay, mm -hmm. so you're, uh, you know, now you're on on the west side of the state, and and you realize you're not going back, and so uh, you started out. Uh, what was your first position uh, uh, over here on the side of the state? So my very first one, um, so again, showing my, I guess, the roots, the ethic, the work ethic I grew up with. I graduated. Um, on a Saturday, I had just gotten back from my last internship, I think on Thursday, graduated on Saturday and was working on Monday. And I had a girlfriend in PT school that she and I had talked about uh, going to Europe together in the fall, which was unusual at that time, I'd say, for my generation to do that. And so I didn't want to take a permanent job and quit on someone. So I took a temp job as a PT in the area and did fill-in work through the summer at different organizations. Um, and then she ended up for a variety of reasons, not being able to go to Europe. I had no desire to go by myself and um, then settled on a job um, that I had filled in at an outpatient orthopedic uh, position that I ended up just absolutely loving and not thinking that that's what I wanted to do when I was in, in school. And so what gave you the confidence to uh, start your own practice and become a small business owner? Um, you know, a few things. I, I knew pretty early on once I got into outpatient physical therapy that that's what I wanted to do eventually was own my own practice. Um, the, <laughs> the man I married, you know, Gil, my husband, Gil Shoes. Yeah, I know Gil. And I, yes, I worked for Gil, um, you know, frowned upon these days, uh, but we worked together for about three years. I actually left, and then we started dating. Um, but Gil was a really great mentor for me, as was the private practice special interest group in Washington. I joined them pretty early on, and I feel like I was surrounded by people that were all independent and were leaders in their field, and it just really impressed me. Um, and I got a job. I was fortunate that I got a job at three years out of school being the director of the PT program at Providence Sports Medicine Clinic. And again, surrounded by some 
fairly impressive people. Um, Larry Pettigan, I was a team physician for the Mariners and I got to work with the Mariners and um, really enjoyed that job. But I also saw the, the side of a hospital organization that holds you back. You know, you budget for something, you get it nine months later, supposedly when it hits the budget, but something goes wrong and now the budget's on hold and you don't get to do it. And it just drove me crazy. I wanted to be able to make a decision and, and make it happen. So I stayed there for two years and decided I couldn't possibly function in that system. I also had a female boss who was more typical, I think, in those days of women not necessarily supporting women. And um, she really didn't want anyone to shine who worked for her. And that was difficult for me. And so I left and just opened my own practice. And so you started out with one practice. And did you uh, did you grow that uh, one practice and, and add others? Or, or tell me about uh, what happened over the next number of years. So that first practice, um, I opened with help from two other PTs. I couldn't get a loan from the bank. And um, I, I, I wanted to try. So I went in and thought maybe I could get one because I was female, get a small business loan. And my only collateral was my... Um, Toyota Corolla car. <laughs> and uh, so the woman banker was really nice to me, but said, no, we, we cannot give you a loan. And so I went to two PTs. Gil and I were not married at the time, but he was in private practice. And Don Mars was another physical therapist in practice in Bellevue. And they both had faith in me and were willing to become my silent partners and help me go into practice. And a year later, I was doing really well, and I didn't want two silent par partners, so I bought them both out. Um, That's amazing. That's great. It was great. It was, and it was great that they they did well on their investment in a year, um, and they were kind enough to let me buy them out also, and um, and remained, you know, Don to this day has remained a friend, and I really appreciate, you know, that he believed in me, and, and I think that was part of what has helped me to always want to you know, help pull somebody else up that could use that. Um, but then Gil and I did get married a year later. Gil had his own practice. We went on to have, he may have had, I'm trying to think, he may have had three practices when we got married. So we kind of always ran our own practices, but we did as a couple have four clinics then. Um, and then, and then you, you actually sold, didn't you? Didn't you sell to um, a major uh, PT corporation? We did. That was the early 90s when um, Clinton was in office and Hillary was um, really trying to move healthcare forward. And it looked like managed care was going to sweep the nation. And if you remember, Governor Lowry was here in Washington trying to beat the other DC, trying to beat the other Washington to manage care. And you know, you recall, you were here, Steve, it just yeah. really looked like private practice was going to be um, difficult to maintain. And so I got an offer from uh, Physiotherapy Associates to get in on the ground floor with them. I did it reluctantly because I really believed in private practice. Um, Gil sold his large clinic to a hospital organization. And then after I joined Physio, we bought the other two clinics that he and I owned. So I ended up with three of our clinics being part of my group here um, and got a national position with Physiotherapy Associates. I had 15 clinics in this area ultimately that I helped develop or buy um, and stayed with them for seven and a half years. And 
I would say the great part about that was that I just learned a ton about finance and P&Ls and numbers and kind of running a big organization. Yeah, so it's... So go on with kind of the pros and cons of that. I mean, it's like, you know, so many of our colleagues uh, come up uh, uh, against, or maybe that's not the right word, or come up to something like this where they're considering selling to a bigger player and then maybe having a role in that organization. So you mentioned on the pro side that you learned a lot. You learned a lot about finances. But what are some of the other pros and what are some of the cons that that, that had you um, uh, going at that time? So I'd say some of the pros, some of the other pros were that I had this national network now of physical therapists because it was a very heavily run, you know, heavily dominated by PTs. Uh, it was owned by Strecker Corporation, but it, and, and our president was not a physical therapist, but all the other leaders in the organization were PTs. And so I really developed a great network across the country and again, got to work with people that, um, were impressive in their own right and that I was able to learn from and, and see how they operated and worked and how they functioned as a leader and what I liked and didn't like about that. Physio also had a lot more financial resources behind them. We got to do some cool educational programs. I put on educational programs for physicians and coaches in the community. We hired um, the athletic trainer for the Mariners to be a consultant with us. Um, so I ended up working with the Mariners for a number of years after that. Um, so it was just really great contacts. And when I sold to Physio, I did feel a bit like a trader. It was hard for a lot of us who sold back then because we, you know, are kind of ingrained in our private practice um, personas. And I think it would have been difficult for me to have done it had not a lot of our colleagues sold at the same time. So we, there was kind of a collective group of us that were able to stay involved in the private practice organization, which I did. Um, we weren't kicked out, which was nice. And I still felt like a private practice owner. I still took responsibility for how I ran my clinics and, um, and was given a lot of that. And I'd say over the seven and a half years is that started to go away a little bit and there were more mandates of how we had to do things. That was the downside was being the buck didn't stop with me. I, I like the buck stopping with me. I like being responsible for the decisions at the end of the day that I make and not having to say, I would like to do this, but I can't because X, Y, and Z won't let us. That That's a hard thing for me. And um, running the business so much by the numbers was also difficult for me. Um, I felt like I was a kind of a placator between the group, between the clinic directors that reported to me and the administration of the company, trying to make sure that that message of here's our goals and here's what you have to do that were very numbers related. I had to soften that and put that in a different context for the clinic directors in order to not lose them. And I was really proud of that. I didn't in my seven and a half years, I never had a clinic director leave while I was there. Um, many left afterwards, but they, they didn't leave while I was there. And, and again, so yeah, those are the cons. The cons are just that, again, there's just a bigger structure and organization dictating how you're going to do things. And they ultimately weren't a physical therapy company. It was a striker corporation and their um, mandate on that side of their business, which is sales really, right? It's, it's surgical equipment and hospital beds and, um, 
they're all about 20% growth and 20% profit margins every year. And that's a very hard thing to sustain <laughs> to do in the physical therapy world. Yes, it is. And so now you've been there for seven and a half years and you decide to leave. And uh, so you start back into uh, opening up a clinic and back into private practice. Yeah, I had two small children then. And uh, my kids were seven and five, I think. And I, like I said, I was running 15 clinics and I was still seeing patients and running my own clinic as the clinic director of that one. And um, my eye was twitching a bit. <laughs> and I recognized that I wasn't living the life I wanted to live. I, the phone was glued to my ear when my kids were with me and I really, really missed private practice. And so I just kind of literally one day said, I, I'm just done. I've had enough. And I went into my office and gave my resignation notice the next day and put, you know, my pedal to the metal. And in about two months, I had my practice open back up. Yeah, that's great. And how did you, how were you able to get around uh, a non-compete there with uh, physio? Did you? Uh, uh, physio made a mistake. They did not have me sign. They're, the non-compete, when I started with them, I think it was a two-year non-compete, but it wasn't a tail. It was from when I started. Oh, okay. So I had no non-compete when I left. And in fact, again, you know, I could have opened up in my own building. I could have gone across the street, but I also felt that wasn't ethical. I sold to them um, in good faith, and they hadn't done anything, you know, wrong, and so I, I did open up. My office is in Factoria. For those that are in Washington, it's kind of southern Bellevue. And there's a freeway between it and downtown Bellevue that acts as a little bit of a geographical barrier. And so I went into downtown Bellevue and opened um, simply to give that space and to feel like I wasn't completely gutting the clinic I was leaving. Okay. And then you eventually built that up to have multiple clinics uh, elsewhere in the area as well. Yeah, we did. So Gil and I did do this one together, and we ended up having eight clinics at one point in time, and we did it differently. The first time that we had the four clinics, you know, we owned them 100% outright and had clinic directors. And this time we brought in partners. So we brought in physical therapists who had uh, mostly worked for us. I think there was one that came in as a, uh, a friend who had worked with another one of our clinic directors, but they were people who had mostly worked for us. In fact, I think all of them worked in my clinic. And um, we created a partnership with each of them in their individual clinics. So we provided the funding and we provided kind of the know-how as to how to open. And they provided the sweat equity and the, you know, the day-to-day -day work in the office to build it up. And then what, what did you notice? Uh, uh, in the new model that there's ownership involved and the PT directors have ownership compared to when you owned them hundred percent, did you notice a difference in how those people, uh, uh, you know, reacted and, and, and did their jobs as part of the company? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, that's the only way I would do it again is to have partners like that. Um, you know, they had, they had, skin in the game, right? It was important for them, for the clinics and the company to succeed because their, you know, their own salary and their own livelihood depended on it at this point in time. They weren't going to 
leave one day and go get another job. Whereas with clinic directors, that, that potential is always there that, you know, the grass could be greener somewhere else. And so I felt that there was a culture of this is our business and everybody was working towards those same goals. So it was, it was very, very different, needed less, um, I'd say less supervision, less direction. Um, you know, we met on a regular basis as a group. Um, and yeah, it, it just was remarkably different from the first set. And even from when I ran, you know, the clinics or physio, very, very different having, having owners. So it sounds like from a leadership perspective, perhaps you were doing less day-to-day management uh, and more collaborative, visionary, strategic type of things. Yeah, I'd absolutely say that. And um, and it was a way to reward people that worked with us and to give people who worked in our clinics an opportunity to see where they could go with us. You know, that, that, that if you work for us and you're interested in ownership, that's available to you. And and like I said, I five of our partners worked for me and I have always been is proud of the, that fact that I was able to kind of see potential in other people and help them recognize their own potential and want to, to strive to make that happen for themselves. And so now in the later phase of your career, uh, if that's okay to say, I know have to be careful. Sometimes people get sensitive <laughs> about that. Uh, but then you decided that, uh, to, uh, uh, to, uh, sell back, um, uh, your portion of those clinics to those people and, and then just focus on your one site currently. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's been an interesting, it's like I have this bell curve of a career and I hate to think I'm on the far side of it. I, so I'm hoping that there's another curve upward at some point in time. Um, but so like I said, Gil and I own them together and he decided he wanted to semi-retire. He's still not completely retired, but we also have ownership in some um, back pain clinics, back programs. And he was the original founder of those many years ago and has continued to do that. But he wanted to step down from being CEO of our company. And I really didn't want to have a husband who was semi-retired. I was probably 54 or 55 at the time. And we'd always talked about being able to travel more. And I just really didn't want to saddle myself with taking on all the clinics. Gil and I were a really good team running them. I didn't see the enjoyment in running them myself and being even busier than I already was. So we opted to sell all of the clinics, but the one I worked at to our partners. And we all kept, um, we kept the identity of the group. So we stayed Peak Sports and Spine Physical Therapy and continued to meet every month and continue to operate as a company for the public facing part of us, um, down to our paperwork is the same. Um, you know, we use the same website. We, we buy our EMR together. We, when we decided to bring on reach or to, uh, you know, the, the patient engagement program, we choose to do those things together. We don't go off and one clinic does it, another doesn't. We do those things together. Um, 
And I've been pretty impressed. I did not, I didn't think the group would stay together this long. I thought that once we all lost that financial connection where Gil and I was, were the majority owner in all of the practices. So, you know, we were able to keep everybody together from that perspective. I thought we would lose that. And to the group's credit, we are still together that way. Yeah, it's a very uh, unique and impressive model. I think it's uh, something that some people can listen to and get some ideas from. So uh, once you take the financial aspect out of it, you probably function more as a, as a network almost than, than as, a, as a company of, of one. Yeah, and I would say if we started it that way, and I think some clinics, and I think it's a great idea, some clinics have been, I'm hearing that talk around the country of small independent clinics banding together with others just to have that larger uh, security. And um, the fact that we were a group, we were a company at one time, the culture was already set for us and the, the um, tendency to work together and, and vote on things and come to an agreement might be a little bit more difficult for, I would call us almost an association versus a network. Um, but I, I think it's worth doing and working, worth looking into. I still believe for our group, I would like to see us move to a little bit more structure of an umbrella organization. And um, partly that is for the financial aspect, if both from a perspective of if we were to sell it, if we wanted to sell Keep Sports and Spine, it's difficult to sell as individual clinics. The value is really in the group as a whole. So everybody's value would increase if we had at least an umbrella organization. And, um, I think from a negotiating perspective, being that little bit larger rather than seven independent uh, clinics from a billing perspective and a payment perspective. And we'd also have a better automatic retirement plan, you know, a way for owners to exit and other people to come in without every owner now having to look at who do I sell my practice to? You know, does one of the other partners want to buy it? Am I going to try to sell it outside the company? Um, those are some downsides of the structure that we have. Well, uh, as as we said, uh, not that you're done yet by any means, but it's been a very illustrious career, and uh, uh, it's been impressive how you maneuvered through it and, and changed with the times, so so that's great to hear. You know, kind of a little historical uh, story here. Uh, I, I don't know if you remember, I think I've shared this story with you before, but I can remember uh, back in the day uh, on a Saturday, I was headed off to probably the dump or somewhere uh, doing some, some yard work. And um, I heard this uh, very impressive woman on the radio on a talk show talking about sports in sports injuries, and I was like, "Wow, she is so impressive." That and I and I looked you up, and it was Allie Grady at the time, I believe. Mm -hmm. Isn't that your maiden name? Yes. And mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I just remember uh, way back then that you were talking, you were on the radio and promoting the profession, and. Uh, I was impressed and I was so proud to be a therapist thinking how well you're re representing our profession. So uh, I remember that story very vividly. And, you know, I, Steve, I have always remembered that phone call when you called me and, um, you know, here in Washington, we always call ourselves friendly competitors. And I think that the, the private practices in Washington state have been unique in that way that we're pretty supportive of one another, even if you're down the street, um, and you weren't down the street from me, but you and I are in the same general geographic area. And you called and told me that you'd listened and you were impressed. And I remember hanging up thinking, wow, that's amazing that this guy took the time to call me 
a competitor in some ways and and be so positive about me. And I think that again, for that says a lot about you and who you were already demonstrating your own leadership abilities and your the desire to uh, you know lift up other physical therapists around you as you've obviously done throughout your whole career. Well, thank you. That was uh, we've been through some times together. That's for sure. We have. That was that was, gosh, thirty at least thirty years ago. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, that's, we've been around. We've been around. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's let's switch gears here a little bit. Now I've heard you mention it a couple times already when you say work ethic, and I know that you believe in and practice that you know just hard work is a mindset that that you uh, that resonates with you, and I think I read something that you. Uh, uh, wrote that you believe that you know if you just worked hard if anyone worked hard uh, they would be rewarded and, and that you always kind of lived by that but lately with kind of the, the the tensions that we've had in this country through uh, racial divides and and systemic issues and so on you've kind of said you know that may, maybe that isn't so true with everybody and I'm just intrigued about what you meant when you wrote that and what you were trying to uh, uh, trying to say. So, Steve, I, like I said, I grew up in a little, you know, sunny side, a farming community, and I, my family owned a business, so I lived, quote, in town, and I do put quotes around that. Um, I thought of myself as a city girl. Um, but we did start working really young, you know, from I had, I started babysitting at 11, I had a paper route before that, um, I washed dishes somewhere after that, and um, I started cutting asparagus, everyone loves this story about me, but I started cutting asparagus in the fields, you cut in the spring and it starts during the school year. And I started doing that in sixth grade. So we were in the fields at five in the morning, um, there at five and you cut, and then we go home and try to get the smell of asparagus off of you before you go back to school. And they called it asparagus, um, asparagus schedule because the school junior high and high school having seven classes a day would move the first period to the end of the day. And every day, the next class would move to the end of the day because all the kids that cut asparagus got to miss their first class. Um, And, you know, that doesn't even exist today, right? So I cut asparagus for four years. Two of those years, I also worked at night at fast food restaurants while going to school. Um, And by the time I was maybe a senior, a junior, senior in high school, the who cut asparagus kind of had changed and where it had been the kids from the community in the town largely cutting asparagus of both Mexican and Caucasian um, races. By the time I was a senior, it mostly had moved or was moving towards immigrant families doing it. And, and the, I'd say the American children stopped cutting and, and I moved on to other jobs But I, had a mom, like I said, mom and dad who owned a business. Mom worked six days a week and would come home and have dinner on in half an hour. She came from a family that um, grew out of the depression and they all picked beans starting at six. So my story was never as good as my mom's because she was in the fields at six and it took me until I was 12 to get out there. Um, but I really did believe that, you know, working hard, anybody can go anywhere. We didn't have any money. I got a lot of scholarships and work study, every form of financial assistance you could get to go to a private school, University of Puget Sound. And I believe, again, if you just try, then you can have that. And then the term white privilege, you know, in more recent years uh, started being utilized. And, And I was one of those people that probably resented that term 
because I didn't think I was privileged. I, I worked really, really hard for everything I have. And I continued to do that when I was in business. I worked 60 and 70 hours a week to have my practice. And, but over the last three or four years, as I've been reading articles on white privilege and on systemic racism, it finally dawned on me that white privilege doesn't mean that I have had things handed to me. And I think those of us who are white have a tendency to bristle at that term, thinking that we're being told that we didn't work hard. I think we see it as a negative. If you say I have white privilege, that means I didn't work hard. I'm just a privileged brat and got what I got. And, you know, divorced parents and I said not a lot of money and all that good kind of stuff. Um, but my white skin allowed me to move in our environment and in our society in a way that was considered the norm. You know, I'm white and in our society that's considered the norm. If you're a person of color, you have to overcome so many biases in the first place that we it's just not a fair starting point. And I think one of the examples when I learned that the GI Bill after World War II that enabled particularly men, but men and women to come home from fighting and get low interest loans to buy a house and low interest loans to open a business and one year of unemployment. That was really not extended to people of color. And the way the middle class grew in this country and developed wealth was through home ownership. And that largely has been denied to the black community in particular. So if you're coming up from an environment where you can't attain wealth, your family can't get ahead, you don't get to see that in your own family. You don't see your parents owning businesses, but it's larger because they don't have access to money. They don't have access to loans. You don't have, again, you just don't have that same starting place. And so I just finally realized that recognizing my white privilege doesn't mean that I didn't work hard. It just means that it's time for me to recognize that there are other people in our society who simply because of their color do not have the same opportunities that I have unless we change that system. Yeah, well, well, thank you for sharing that. I think that's very brave to go on a, a program like this and say that because it's, uh, you know, it, it's just what, what we grow up with and what we know and, and being aware of some of these historical things. Um, yes, the GI Bill is, is one of those things that, you know, is just never taught to us. It's just never... Uh, uh, until we've read recently, I think the number that I read is only 3% of um, black uh, uh, veterans were able to get any kind of a loan through the GI Bill when when vast, huge numbers of, of white people were. And it's just, uh, as you said, a, a real step back as far as, uh, you know, get, getting a chance to uh, uh, get equity and, 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 and gain wealth in the system. So, it is something that we just need to be aware of and, and talk openly about. And so uh, I commend you for being willing to do that because from your uh, position as, as what you've done and what you've achieved and with your white skin, um, it, it's something that we need to just acknowledge and say, you know, something's wrong. We, we got to do something different and, it, and, it, and, and everybody's got to be a part of that equation going forward. Well, absolutely. Even, even Steve in the town that I grew up in, you know, again, we differentiated 
kids who were, uh, and I say kids because I was a kid growing up, so I related to kids. I didn't live in Sunnyside in my adult life. I moved when I was 18 and never moved back again. But kids were Mexicans or Mexican-Americans, and we we differentiated even to that degree. It's like, well, well oh, you're a Mexican-American. You were born here, and you sound like me. So your skin's is still a different color, and I need to make that distinction but you're not an immigrant and immigrants almost were, were just such second-class citizens. They didn't speak the language as well. They were, they're put in poor housing. We almost um, were annoyed that we knew they were sending their money back to Mexico to take care of their families. But to us, it's like, you're not contributing to the community. There was, there were so many biases that were ingrained in us rather than seeing these people as really hardworking individuals that were willing to, you know, leave the country to try to create a better life for their family. Instead of looking at that part of their story, we looked at what are you taking away from me? And I think that's where being white, we have the privilege of saying I'm the norm. What is every other color or race or what have you taking away from me rather than saying, what are you adding to our society? Yeah, well said, well said. So uh, on another note here, uh, outside of work, uh, you've had some real significant health challenges in your own family. And, and how are you able to take to find the time to help those that, that need you and still run successful business, as we've heard? So uh, I'm talking about your daughter and, and, and your mom as well. So share with us a little bit about those struggles. Well, thanks for asking about them, Steve. I, I've, I've shared some stories with people about my mom and my stepdaughter. I'm pretty open about it, especially about my mom, um, who has Alzheimer's and mom was diagnosed Nine years ago now, um, my dad died seven years ago, and she had been, oddly, she was his caregiver. So dad's mind was normal, in fact, sharp as a tack, but physically he was in pretty bad shape. But we didn't realize how much he helped them function as a couple because his brain was intact. So when dad died, um, one, the trauma of his death made mom worse, which we did not know that happens with Alzheimer's, but it does. And like I said, she was just much worse than we realized. So we realized that all of a sudden dad dies and we go to his funeral. It's like, wow, mom can't, mom can't live here alone like this. Um, and all of us worked in the family. Um, one of my sisters happened to have just retired early. And thank God for that because she became the main person to coordinate what we're going to do with my mom. But we moved her over here for six months. She lived between siblings. Um, I'm lucky in that way that I have five brothers and sisters and, and three of us live here. And we took turns with mom living with us until we figured out what we were going to do. We finally, she really wanted to go back home. She had a really good tight friend circle there. And so we moved her back home after we found some people to, um, come in during the day. And over time that went from coming in during the day to living in, and we would take each of us took one weekend a month and would go back home and give that person anywhere from two to four days off. And we would stay with mom. And I was very lucky. I felt very, very lucky that I owned my own business that gave me the flexibility to be able to do that and a well-established business. You know, so I wasn't just opening a practice where you're not sure you're going to be able to pay your bills at the end of the month. I had a very well-established practice and well-established staff who've been fabulous. Um, 
in terms of stepping up and taking over a lot of roles in the clinic for me so that I could be out more for my family. Um, and with mom, I was still able to work and see patients and, and go home on the weekends because I had a lot of siblings helping with different aspects. I took care of mom's health issues. Another sister took care of her finances. My brother took care of her repairs. And, and I had a very supportive husband um, who would help me as I was helping mom. Um, so it definitely took a village. And then Kristen, my stepdaughter, who's the oldest in our, of our kids, was diagnosed with ALS two years ago. And that's been much harder, where I found Alzheimer's difficult with my mom um, and very, very sad to watch my mom lose, lose her mind and, and lose her ability to be that business dynamo that she was. Um, with Kristen, watching her lose her body very, very rapidly. She had a one of the fastest ascents that our doctor has ever seen or her doctor has ever seen. She went from you know dancing in September at my niece's wedding to being diagnosed in October to having you know a brace on one leg in December, a brace on both legs in January, a walker by February, March, a scooter by April, a feeding tube by June, and wheelchair and a trach and ventilator by July. So again, I, I became, Gil and I were really her healthcare managers and I took that role on a little bit more than he did. He took on helping her with her finances. We had to buy her a new house. We had to buy her a wheelchair van. You know, we just had, she's single, she's divorced. So, um, and she has, so uh, she has twin sons as well, right? She has twin boys. Yeah. They just turned uh, 16 in April, which was a godsend because they can drive now. But so by April, I realized that, um, I don't think my stress levels ever been that high and trying to run my business and treat patients. And Kristen just had emergency after emergency after emergency. So I was constantly changing my schedule and canceling on people. And I, I just, couldn't keep doing it. So I finally stepped out of patient care in April of 2019. I stepped out of patient care. And um, that was the first for me in my career, other than a couple of times for a couple months when I had children. Um, and I thought I would go back. I couldn't say I was not going to go back. So I didn't tell patients. I just kind of stepped out temporarily. Um, and again, a godsend that I'm in private practice and have been able to keep it going. And I had a great clinic director that has really stepped up, um, strong staff in my office, strong front desk manager, and they've been amazing. So they've let me step away and still oversee the business from, I'd say, a visionary perspective, from a overarching perspective, um, but the day-to-day -day stuff is really pretty much taken care of for me now at the office and given me the ability to really focus on helping take care of Kristen. And wow, it's just the sacrifice is, is immense and I, I, I can only imagine how difficult that may be and um, not to be too down here, but uh, uh, there's there's more to come. It's, it's um, you know, it's, it's, it's bleak, I'm sure. Yeah, there's more to come. It's a it's a hideous disease. There's no there's nothing good about it. Nothing. 
And, um, you know, with mom, I've been able to have some positive moments and my mom's happy, you know, she's in a memory care unit and she's still happy. And we, I so enjoy my time with her, even though she makes no sense when she talks, there's this, it's hard to describe to people if you don't have someone in your life like that, but her conversations always have a flicker of who she was. She, she was a bossy pants man. I totally, and my mother, she was a bossy pants. She, um, you know, ran the chamber of commerce in our town. She used to play uh, dice with the guy. She was the only female business owner in their group that would go play dice uh, at the coffee place for breaks and um, just a dynamo of a woman, but very bossy. And no one ever did things as good as she could do them. And so you have these conversations with her and she talks all the time about, you know, having to work too hard and someone didn't do their job. So she had to step in and fix it. And and she's just hilarious. So you can hear who she was in those conversations. Um, Where Kristen, her mind is completely normal. She's, she's, it's a little bit like my mom and dad in some that way, but her body is completely betrayed her. I mean, Kristen can't move. She's completely paralyzed and she can't speak. Um, And we thought that was the end of it. But now she's lost her facial expressions as well. So she can't smile. She can't, you can't get a sense even of if she's happy or sad. Um, Yet she finds a reason to live every day, to be there for her boys. Um, It's been an amazing journey for me. And I've also decided, you know, we talk about these leadership roles. I think my view of myself as a leader has changed a lot over the course of my mom and my daughter's illnesses and that I don't, I can be a leader in a lot of different ways and it it can look different now than it was two years ago and five years ago. And and I'm okay with that. Well, we'll dive into that a little bit deeper. What do you mean it's changed and how do you feel it's helped you as a leader? Um, I, I really couldn't see myself for one, not treating patients. I, strongly believe that, you know, you need to lead by example. And in my mind, that was pretty concrete. How could I ask my therapist to work a 10 hour day if I don't work a 10 hour day? How can I ask them to take an extra patient on if I don't take an extra patient on? And and I kind of finally realized that example doesn't have to be that concrete. Example can be, I am still a strong contributor to my community. I'm still here for my staff. Um, they know what my culture has been and they can see what I'm doing for my family. And, and I, and I think that that's just as important, in fact, more important that you're there for your family first. And I think that they can respect that. I understand that and that I believe that that's true for them as well. So I can lead from afar and that's okay. And, and that my leadership can take on a different tone. It, I really, believed in being a mentor for other physical therapists and helping other PTs achieve their potential, whether that's ownership or becoming, you know, politically active in our organization, um, becoming a specialist in women's health. I've really tried to promote that in the people around me. And I realize now that as an advocate for Alzheimer's and an advocate for health equity, and an advocate for population health and trying to address some of the reasons that people develop Alzheimer's. And that's a leadership role that I can take on and move away from the need to be necessarily a role model as a physical therapist only. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, 
Well said. And I, I mean, your mom and, and your daughter are just so lucky to have someone like you as their advocate. We all know that if you don't have an advocate in the healthcare system, it can be uh, dismal and scary. So uh, hats off to you. And I just wish you the best going forward and dealing with uh, their issues that are continue, continue to be there for sure. Thanks, Steve. You know, uh, back to the business side of things, uh, when will you know it's time to step back and and retire, retire from that, from the really retire. I know I have, I have difficulty with that. Um, and maybe you and I can have coffee and you could help me. Um, (laughs) because part of me recognizes that I, that it's probably time. Um, but that concept of what will my relevance be and although I can see other avenues for myself, I do still strongly identify with being a physical therapist. And I love, love, love my physical therapist community. And I love the leadership community that I've been able to be around that um, makes me feel like just a tiny, tiny leader because I get to be around, you know, people like you and other physical therapists that have just done so much. Um, so trying to decide how to step aside in terms of giving up my practice and, and then where do I go from there? And I, you know, I've listened to you and your podcast and that question has come up with other people. And I think it's something that we all face at this point in time is how do I stay relevant? I still feel pretty young. I'm not ready to just garden. Um, I am ready to play more, but I'm not ready to do much more than that. So, so I don't know. I, I think it'll happen in the next few years. I'm just not sure, sure when. Yeah, you know, I think it's the it's the common response, and and I you've heard me say it before on this show that uh, yeah, relevance is is something that 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 we all uh, want to contribute. We all want to do something. We don't want to just give that up. And and defining that is tough sometimes. So uh, uh, you're normal in that way. So that that's okay. <laughs> but uh, you know, you, you'll find it. But it's uh, definitely a journey that um, you know people take in different ways. That's for sure. So uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, this has just been a tough year. I mean, with the pandemic, what it's just crazy. And, and so I, I'm interested in a couple things relating to that. One is, um, how have you managed your business going forward with, uh, you know, with, with the pandemic looming and, and trying to, to, to keep it going during these crazy times? But then also, you're, you're a board member of the private practice section of the American Physical Therapy Association. And it's just been a crazy time to be in that role. So uh, you have your business challenges, you have your family health challenges. Now you have challenges trying to keep this association going forward and helping so many others that are going through the same thing that you're going through. So um, how do you deal with all this and, and, and how do you handle this the burden of all that stress? I drink a lot of wine. <laughs> That's good. That's good. That's good. And, and, and it's good. And it's good wine too, right? It's got to be good wine. So, so yeah, I, that, that's actually been true. I am deciding it's time to come back. Um, but interestingly, Steve, I, being on the board of the private practice section, I think has been my salvation in many ways through COVID. Uh, that group of people coming together to really help our profession, specifically private practitioners, but others as well, move forward through the pandemic has been nothing short of astonishing. And and I really credit the people on the board with me, the others on the board and the 25 people that came together on the COVID task force that we started that 
gosh, we met every single day in the first months of the pandemic to try to figure out what information we could give to our colleagues to help them get through this pandemic. And by doing that, you know, we got to meet with people from all over the country who are in the same boat as us that were doing great things and great ideas and break up into teams of, you know, you look at payment issues and you look at regulatory issues and you look at telehealth issues and let's come back together and come up with solutions. And so friends would talk about cleaning out their closets and all the things that they got done that they've been meaning to do and the books they read. I did none of that. I didn't get a single closet shelf cleaned out um, because we, I was just really, really busy between trying to manage the practice through this and and then be a part of that PPS board. But the board and the, and the work that they did helped me make decisions in my own practice and put policies in place. You know, we did what everybody else did, wound down to, you know, some essential patients in those first couple months. In fact, we got down to only 15% of our patient load, our normal patient load, because we took it pretty seriously that we felt we shouldn't be seeing people that didn't really, really need us. And we all thought this would end soon. And then we have ramped back up. Um, we're doing things a little bit differently now. Um, I'm still keeping a close eye on our finances and the fact that we did change how long we treat a patient, we have less aids in place, you know, we've expanded our hours, we've had to cut back on our fitness group classes. So I've really been keeping a close eye on our finances and making sure that as we're growing, are we growing in a way that's going to keep us financially viable? And it, Looks like we are, but I think that's something that you have to do on a constant basis. We did get the PPP loan that helped us through those really couple bad months. Um, we uh, took out another loan that we gave back, but we did take out one of the other government loans uh, just in case, kept up, had that for a couple months in the bank and then thought, you know, I don't think we're going to need it. Let's give it back so we don't build up more debt. I've always been against building up much debt. Um, and we kept almost all of our people on, the ones that we didn't keep on left by choice. They were either going back to school or they had kids at home. And so uh, so we were able to do that. And a uh, little challenging keeping Kristen, and that's my stepdaughter, her caregivers in place. And we've had, we have more people in and out of her house because of the caregivers and the fact that her children, you know, have a dad that lives in a different household. and. Um, so my big worry really with uh, COVID has been for Kristen. And so trying, I go into my own office less. Um, I do more things via Zoom uh, to try to keep her protected as well. Um, and again, I think I just have a really big support system through the private practice section, through my own staff and, and through my family. Yeah, that, I think the private practice section especially the board and, and the task force really need to be commended for do, providing a service that was absolutely essential to, to members. And, and um, you know, I, I know it's been a tough year and even from the financial perspective of the reserves going down and, you know, all the things you had to deal with. Uh, I hope you all uh, hold your heads very high because that, that is a service that I've heard time and time again that people so much appreciated and really made a difference in their lives. And that's what an association is supposed to do. It's supposed to provide that, that information, education, and hopefully support to their members. And, and um, I've been really impressed with what, what, what y'all have been able to do in this last year. 
No, thank you. And I think our, our, you know, our task going forward is how do we harness that energy with perhaps not meeting daily, <laughs> but how we harness that energy and, and just that ability to be much more nimble than we have in the past. How do we harness that and kind of change how we do things going forward so we can be that more nimble, uh, responsive organization? I, I think like anything, you know, chaos and, and uh, problems can be opportunities if you look at them from the right perspective. And, and I think telehealth and technology and healthcare is also one of those opportunities that I'm super excited about and have been for several years, but I feel like we've been pushed forward. And uh, I'm a big proponent of telehealth. And I think that's how we're gonna access the 93% we always talk about, doesn't get to physical therapy. Um, so I'm, I'm super excited about that opportunity. Yeah, that's great. Well, uh, it's great to have some optimism looking forward, that's for sure. <laughs> so usually, Allie, at this time of the uh, interview, I always ask a common question. And that question is, in relation to leadership, what is a pearl of wisdom that you could leave our listeners with today? Uh, trust the people around you to do their job. You know, if, if you if they have trusted you to be their employer and their boss and their manager, trust that you've done a good job with them and that, that they can do their job. They'll flourish if you let them. Yeah. Great advice. Well, Allie, thanks so much for your time today. I think you really, uh, uh, went out and, and hit some deep issues and, and we, we, we thank you for sharing those because uh, we all learn from them as well. And it's been a real pleasure, uh, you know, walking side by side with you over these 30 plus years that we've known each other. And, uh, um, and I know there's more to come. So thanks for all you do for our profession and, and sharing with us today, uh, what your thoughts are. And, uh, hopefully we can get through this holiday season with, uh, with, uh, some family together and, and, uh, hopefully return to some normalcy, um, in 2021. We're, let's all hope for that, Steve. And thank you so much for having me. Okay. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. To listen to all my interviews, subscribe to Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and many other popular podcast platforms. Some of these interviews are on video, and you can search YouTube for Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson. You can also access the entire library of interviews on my website, orange.coaching.com and that is orange the word.coaching.com and go to the media center and click on podcasts or video gallery you can also enter the website from pilpodcast.com mm-hmm.